Welcome to the Boomer the Babe Show, your headquarters for interesting and stimulating conversation with people who have been there, done that, and bought the t-shirt. Indeed, this is the Boomer the Babe Show, and uh, we have bought the t-shirt, and we've been there and done that, so uh, we want to make sure that everybody knows who they're talking to here. A couple of baby boomers sitting here under the microphone. I'm Deborah Brown. And I'm Pete Peters. And we are definitely ready. We have got a good show today. I'm excited. We have a good show today. Uh, The gentleman that's our guest today, Mr. Uh, Alan Klein, is an author, and he calls himself a jollytologist. Uh, We're going to find out what jollytologist is. I happen to know because he was on the show uh, with me. He was looking that up, and he told me as we were in in the little show prep that the last time he was on the show was... I think he said 2012. 2012. So uh, it's been about two to three years since uh, Alan's been with us, and we want to get an update on what he's go- what's going on. I know uh, sometime this year he's going to have a new book coming out, and he's going to tell you about that near the end of the show. But we've got three books in front of us that are his. Uh, but let's just start, first of all, by welcoming Alan Klein. Uh, Alan, welcome to, back to the Boomer the Babe Show. Thank you, Pete and, and Deborah. And you know, when you said uh, you bought the T-shirt, I not only bought the T-shirt, but it has holes in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Start off right on the on the right foot, laughing. That's good. <laughs> right. Yes, we, and I wore that have... T-shirt so much that it's full of holes already. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's fun. Well, what we like to do to start off, and you may remember this from the last time, is we like to have you give us what we call your two-minute movie. And that is your life, as far back as you'd like to go, all the T-shirts included. And uh, tell us whatever you'd like to tell us for two minutes about your life. So, your two-minute movie, please, Mr. Alan Klein. Alan Klein in two minutes or less. Okay. (laughs) I was born in the Bronx. Now, um, when I was seven years old, I was born in the Bronx, but when I was seven years old, my parents took me to see my first Broadway show, Oklahoma. And I was so taken back, and this was seven years old. When I came out of the theater, I said, I want to be the person who made those pretty stage pictures. And I got later on, I got into Yale Drama School. It was a three-year master's degree. It was the leading school in the country to learn about scenic design. And I got into it, and I was kicked out after the first year. And I was told I had no talent. And I was totally heartbroken. But I went back to New York City. I got into CBS television as an apprentice. And then I passed the union test and became a full-fledged designer and designed for Captain Kangaroo, Merv Griffin, Jackie Gleason show. And what I realized looking back over my life, and that was just one incident, but what I learned was nobody could tell me I can't do something, that I have the total power over what I can do or not do. And that was such a great lesson in me that uh, for me that has uh, just just permeated my life and uh, helped me to be a, a professional speaker because I almost failed speech in college, to be an author when people said you can't sell a book, books don't sell, 
And so it's a great lesson for me and I hope for your audience. Wow, no doubt. Uh, so anytime somebody says you can't, there are those of us who take that not just as a a challenge, but a gift. You know, it's like, fine, okay, that's it's your your right to say it and my right to go ahead and do it, doggone it. <laughs> so, right, and, so, and in fact, for me, when somebody says you can't do it, it like spurs me on to prove them wrong. Yeah. So I have e- even greater greater kind of will to, to do what I want to do. Uh, Deborah has something that she likes to say from time to time and thinks uh, similar to that might be t- taking place. She says, uh, the best revenge is living well. <laughs> oh, I love that, Deborah. Oh, it's so true. Isn't it, though? It's like you know, and I, you, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, well, I, uh, as you were saying that, I, I I was thinking my cousin, who is no longer alive, she was like a sister to me, but she grew up in a, in a welfare family. It was during World War II. Her parents were divorced. Her mother worked. My aunt worked at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. They had very little money. And yet she and, and my aunt, her mother, were some of the most joyous people I have ever met. Um and one of the things my cousin said is that her mother taught her uh, the great lesson was to make somebody else happy, one person happy every single day. And and instead of focusing on yourself, to live joyously. I mean, she used to go flying when, I don't know, you may remember these days, but you can go on an observation deck at the airport and you could the propeller would spin, and you would wave to the people sitting in the window of the plane as they took off. <laughs> yeah, and that she that. went, that's a while back. Yeah, and she went in those days. I mean, she flew to Iceland and you know Russia, and just, I. It, she was amazing. So you're so right. You know, just live your life fully. That's that's the best revenge. Is do you think, Alan, that the uh, uh, the art of a joyful life and living joyfully and, and being a jollytologist uh, types person and so on and so forth is is that uh, earn, uh, learned or is that uh, hereditary? Yeah, mm. uh, good question. I don't know what science would say, but I think anybody can learn it. Because as I say, my cousin, you know, they were on welfare. They were very poor. Um, but but also I see part of it in my family. I mean, my mother and uh, her sister, my aunt, would, would always say they were the peace sisters from burlesque, Irene and Yuri. <laughs> 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 um, so they were... They were like always joking around, and I don't, I don't know where that comes from. Um, but I certainly learned it from my mother. My father, on the other hand, was very solemn, and you know, for him, the glass was always half empty. And luckily, I learned from my mother how to be happy and joyous. I mean, um, I remember she was living in an assisted living facility. And they would have music every live music every Saturday night, and she would get up with her walker 
and she would dance with her walker. She'd be the only one on the floor dancing, and she'd call her walker Fred Astaire. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So do I inherited that? You know, probably inherited some of that, and then some of it was my life and and turning things that were not so great around, um, particularly with humor and, and looking at the lighter side. Well, I was very lucky, am very lucky, to have a whole family of very funny people. I mean, my two brothers are just a stitch, and they love nothing more than to turn just a regular outing into something where we're all crying laughing to the point where we're almost thrown out of places, you know, where you're laughing Uh so hard, just like people are looking at you like, really, you need to leave, you're out of control. Uh Uh, and I've had an entire life like that. My father was a very funny man, and my mother was funny in a, in a different way from my father. And I consider myself pretty damn funny, I have to say. And I have a girlfriend named Donna who I would tell a story quietly to a group, and she would say it loud enough for the rest of the room to hear, and everybody kept thinking that she was very funny. And they would all laugh at that, whatever it was. And then finally, about five years into this, I realized that if I didn't speak up, no one would know that I was actually the funniest person in the room, and we've then made a joke out of that, too. But um, I just love making people laugh. I love it. That is great. And see, my brother has a great sense of humor, too, but he's a joke teller. Um, And so he entertains people with his jokes. I'm not a great joke teller because I have a lousy memory, so I can never remember the punchline. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I, I'm always, you know, screwing that up. So I, I kind of look for the lightest side of life and the funny things around me, and that's exactly what I teach people, that you don't have to know a joke or to be a good joke teller, but there is humor just all around us. I mean, one example, a um, number of years ago, I was in a laundromat, and I looked on the wall, and there was a sign that said, when the machine stops, uh, remove all your clothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> uh, so my one of my brothers, is, one of my brothers would do it. <laughs> right, of course. Um, but you know, my point is that there is humor all around, and, and ju- we just need to look for it. And and we get so stressed out that uh, it gets in the way of seeing the humor that's actually there. Well, sometimes, too, our humor is um, is so very wise and so very telling about the importance of being heart-to-heart with people. You know, it's easier to get in with somebody sometimes with something that's a little bit humorous rather than um, too serious and, um, you know, maybe feel you feel exposed or something like that when you're being vulnerable, but... If you're if you've got that humor in there, you can kind of go in with somebody in a, in a faster, more fun way. Right, and and you know it, it's also a way of communicating. Uh, look at some of those commercials; they use a lot of humor because they want to get their message across and they want you to remember it. Uh, you know, we still uh, this is years ago, but where's the beef? Remember that one? Oh yeah, right. of course, and, absolutely, yeah. And we remember it because it was a couple of uh, older ladies, you know, joking around, and where's the beef? Um, and it was funny. So, And the, well, Victor Borga, the the uh, 
piano playing comedian said laughter is the shortest distance between two people, which is right. so true. Yeah. I, th- I think that's what I was. Yeah, that's exactly a better way of saying what I tried to say a moment ago. What were you going to say, Pete? Uh, there's there's a commercial that's airing right now, and I think it's I think it's absolutely hilarious. There's this family driving in their I guess their new Subaru, and the uh, the mother uh, is, is the grandmother is in the, in the back seat, and she starts saying things like, "Oh, this is nice interior of the car," and and. One of the participants in the front seat says something about that it's it's the it's the special edition leather or something like that. And she goes, oh, she says, uh, your grandfather really loved it when I wore leather. And they look at each other like like what's coming. And he said, and then she says he was a very dominant man. He was a very dominant man. <laughs> and then the, 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 the her son goes, mom. Because there's kids in the car, and it was it was just it's just the way she says it is just hysterical. It's just it's absolutely right. priceless. And, and see, so you remember the commercial because oh, yeah. they're getting the message across with a laugh. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, a lot a lot of the commercials that uh, you see are either uh, you remember it because of the humor, or you remember it because of its poignancy. But just a straight message about you know uh, save money here today for you know for President's Day sales that doesn't always get you there. I mean, that's exactly. Just one of, that's just one of many. So I mean, humor has humor and, and uh, has a, has a place in many areas of our lives. Uh, commercials is just one way, but uh, in any number of circumstances, uh, you can use humor for better communication. Right. Well, I'd say communication is one. Coping is another. It's such a great coping tool when we're stressed out to see if you can find some humor in the situation. Well, what I like about your books is they are bite-sized opportunities to find just the right pick-me-up, really, if you're, you know, in a in a moment. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at Inspiration for a Lifetime the book called Inspiration for a Lifetime, Words of Wisdom, Delight, and Possibility. And I love this because you can open it to any page and get something outstanding that is a quote from a famous person. And I opened, excuse me, to page 77. And, excuse me, my voice is all weird. And uh, it's about friends and family. And I think it's interesting. We were just talking about friends and family just, just a moment ago. And um, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the only way to have a friend is to be one. And I can't tell you how many times I have said that. Not those exactly, but when I talk about if you're going to be a, um, an advocate for someone, you have, to, you have to advocate and you have to be an advocate. If you're going to be a buddy, you have to be a buddy and to have a buddy. So it's interesting that I would open that up and realize that it's, it speaks to me, you know? Well, I... I... I, I don't think it. I mean, it is interesting, but I think that's the the way I love to tell people to use these books, because I think you could open it up and whatever uh, quote or little anecdote pops out at you on that page, that was meant for you that day. So I'm going to do that what you just did, and okay, I'm on page. This is inspiration for a lifetime. This is a book. And I'm on page 133, 
And this quote was uh, popped out at me by Leo Biscaglia, who was the the hug person, I think, or the love person. He said, life is a paradise for those who love many things with a passion. Hmm. Very nice. Very nice. So that might be like a... Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, that might be like a little lesson to me today to love something more with a passion or find find what I what I'm passionate about. So it might be my little lesson for the day. Well, what you, were you going to say, Pete? No, yeah, I was I was just going to ask you. This book is a hundred and uh, or two hundred and some odd pages. Every page has at least I think four for the most part quotes. Uh, where did you find all that material? Where did you find all those quotes? <laughs> well, you know, when I first started doing these books, and I now have about seven out on the market, um, there was no computers. There was, I mean, the Internet, but only, you know, big colleges had them or other places like that. Um, so I have a library in my house of probably four to five bookshelves of nothing but quotation books. And I would sit down and go through all those books. Now it's a lot easier. I go on the Internet and I type in a word um, like uh, money or money matters, and all of a sudden I'll have 500 quotes to choose from. So uh, now my process of finding them is a lot different than when this book was first written. Um, but but also the you know it's a, oh it's an easy process you get some quotes you put the book together not quite that easy because each book has a different theme and then each of the books uh, have a certain order uh, related to that theme so the book we're talking about inspiration for a lifetime has things about um, I guess more personal things like age and aging, um, change and challenge, uh, life and living, uh, diet and exercise, friends and family, health and healing, uh, things like that. I think I think you get the picture. And then other books like Change Your Life would have a totally different uh, focus of what quotations are in there. So how do you choose the quotation? Now you have all these literally thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of quotations. How do you choose which one is just, or which ones are just the right ones for that book? Well, I I actually think in some levels the quotations choose me. You know, I I, I think like, do they, do they speak to me? Do they call out to me? Um, uh, are they relevant? And then they have to fit in a category in the book. So if I'm looking for quotes on age and aging, um, then I gather all of those. And then all of a sudden I see like a there's a pattern here that somebody's talking about some aspect of aging and then someone else is talking about it but in a very different way. And then I also try to spread... Um, you know, have some humorous quotes and some really wise ones with some witty and some wise. And suddenly there's this flow of, okay, this fits with this one, this 
you know, this one doesn't fit at all. I'm not going to use it. Um, so I, I think you get to see a, a little pattern starts forming, and those are the ones I use. Do the quotes define the categories, or do the categories define the quote? Well, it depends on the book. Um, sometimes I'll just find a lot of quotes in one category, and I'll go, which I wasn't even planning on using, and all of a sudden I go, yeah, this really fits. This is perfect for this book. And so I might have five quotes, and then I look for more in, in that area. Um, and then, as I say, I try to also, if I don't have any funny ones, uh, being the world's only jolly colleges, I, I then start looking, okay, I need some funnier quotes here. Um, like I'm just, I open to the age and aging in the inspiration for a lifetime. And there are two kind of humorous on this page. One is by uh, Rose in The Golden Girls. And she said, my mother always used to say, the older you get, the better you get, unless you're a banana. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in that same book, in the death and dying section, I just happened to notice one of the funniest men that ever lived, I believe, was Robin Williams. And his quote is, death is nature's way of saying your table is ready. And uh, I just, I just, um, you know, that's kind of a poignant look back at, you know, humor and death and dying and, and to have it encapsulated in Robin Williams. What a sad day right. that was. Honest to God, I have, I have friends who were devastated for days after he died. They right. just could not now, get I, over it. I was totally in shock, you know, and... It it actually brings out a point about comedians. A lot of them throughout history had had a very dark past or present. Um, uh, Charlie Chaplin, I think his father was an alcoholic and his mother went insane. Um, Carol Burnett was brought up by, her, I think, her aunt, was it, where she'd pull her ear every show to say hello to her aunt or her grandmother. Um, Alan King's parents, I think, uh, also there was a problem with his parents. But it's a way of, they use humor as a way of coping with the difficulty they had. And unfortunately, it it got to Robin Williams, and uh, he could not find the humor, uh, even though he was such a great artist. He was. Now, you got some of your certifications, and you you actually have a master's degree from St. Mary's College in humor. I didn't know there was such a thing, so why don't you tell us about that? <laughs> okay, well, it's I, I um, did an independent study uh, master's degree. The college was uh, St. Mary's, as you said, in Winona, Minnesota, and um, my advisor was William Fry, Jr., who was a leading a uh, researcher, psychologist in humor, and he was at Stanford University in California, and I live in California, so he he uh, helped me through it. But the the um, degree is actually in human, H-U-M-A-N, development. And my thesis was The Healing Power of Humor, which turned into my first book, although the writing is, is very different. And so for several years, I did a lot of research in therapeutic humor and got the master's degree in it. The interesting thing about when I was doing research in therapeutic humor, 
there was so little uh, being done or had been done in the past that I would sit in the library. Again, this was before the Internet. You know, today you can type in therapeutic humor on the Internet and you will probably get a quarter of a million entries, you know, to look at. Then I used to sit, I don't know if you remember, microfiche. Oh, yeah. I which do. was film, and I'd sit at the library for days turning that little machine and looking through microfiche. Um, so my my degree is in human development, and my specialty was therapeutic humor. Well, that's that's fantastic. So you've had to do this the hard way, my man. <laughs> so, <laughs> and now now you get to use the internet, which is fun. I like uh, Quote Garden. Do you use? Do you happen to go on Quote Garden when you're looking for quotes? Uh, I do sometimes. I probably have some quotes on there. The interesting oh. thing about the the internet is, um, I know brainy quotes. I have several. They put several pages of my quotes. But the interesting thing about the Internet is sometimes they're not attributed correctly. And in my case, uh, Alan Klein felt the same way as I do, was the Beatles' manager. And uh, they often are attributing some of the quotes they've taken from my book to Alan Klein, the Beatles' manager. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a little weird. And then there was a site that took all of these, I'm sure it was from not the United States because the quotes they took from my book was so, um, I mean, it's not, it would just be like a sentence, you know, it wouldn't even make sense as a, a taking out as a quote. And they would quote me and they put them on T-shirts. <laughs> oh, and my God. I finally I, I finally got a hold of the company and I said, please stop, you know, cease and desist, which they did. But um, that's the funny thing about the Internet. It just has so much great stuff, but it also has stuff that's, you know, not so great. Well, you can find anything you want to find on the Internet, good, bad, or indifferent. Right. Whether it's true or not, that's another issue. <laughs> exactly, because there's in many cases it's anonymous and there's no attribution. So these people just say whatever they want to say. Oh, that's another. You bring up a really good point. When I'm doing these books, I'll look up a quote or find a quote, and it's attributed to like three or four different authors. Oh. So then I have a, a search of who said this. And I will go to the library and try to search it out or ask a librarian. And librarians love to do this, you know, find the research. And I remember one quote, I thought Tara Burnett said it, and I I showed it to the librarian and she said, I'll get back to you. And a couple of weeks later, she sent me about 10 pages of research they had did, they did, and they could not find Carol Burnett saying that, but they thought the tone of it, uh, some other things she said, they thought it probably was hers. So in my books, I always put attributed to Carol Burnett. Um, so I always try to make sure that the quote is actually uh, the right quote and, and the right person who said it. In your books, who is is there one or several of several people that are are the uh, the most quoted by you, 
Huh. Well, probably anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're good. With, you're good. <laughs> would, would be the most quoted. <laughs> that you was know, quick. I, I, I was in um, in Budapest several years ago, and in their park, one of their parks, they have a statue, and the face is like, there's like no face. And it's a statue of anonymous. <laughs> oh my God! And I kind and, of anonymous, anonymous. <laughs> oh, oh, she. So it was a woman. Thank, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well known, in, well known in history, I might add, Alan. Very well known in history. Anonymous. Right. Um, wow. Can we go you know, to you, the? Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, Peaches gave me a little more for my reference. I know, I like that. My repertory here. Uh, Yep, that's right. No, but you, you, just to finish, who's most quoted? Probably people like uh, George Bernard Shaw, a lot of stuff. Um, Shakespeare, maybe. Um, I like Woody Allen, so I quote him a lot. Uh, Probably George Bernard Shaw, or Mark Twain, I guess, also. Mark Twain supposedly uh, said a, a lot. If you ever use anonymous, make sure that you quote me on that, would you? <laughs> I will. You can, I absolutely <laughs> love that. And, and you can you. quote me on that. And you can quote me on that. Uh, okay. I will. I will. Oh, my gosh. All right. Now, what I wanted to do is go to The Art of Living Joyfully, How to Be Happier Every Day of the Year. And I just learned something today that I did not know, and I'm excited because in the introduction, you say that psycho neuroimmunology means that the body, mind, and spirit are interconnected. I have never seen that word before. And I do a lot uh. of stuff. I've, I do a lot of stuff with body, mind, and spirit authors, and um, I've never seen that. But yeah, I, mean, I well, know it's yeah. Go ahead. I just think it, it's, it, I think it's great well, to see it's that word. A new, fairly new, you know, kind of area of interest in the scientific world. And I'm sure you, you've heard from some of the authors you've interviewed um, the body-mind connection. You know, what we think affects uh, our health and our body. And that's real. I mean, it's a really long word, psychoneuroimmunology. But basically it means, it just means that, that the, uh, our thinking could influence um, our physical health and the body-mind right. connection. Yeah. Right, so, so it's just big words. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it's but it's the scientific word for body, mind, and spirit being interconnected. So I like that. Right. Now, what I was going to say right. is that um, this this whole book is about the power of words to either drag you down or lift you up. And of course, this book is about lifting you up. And I love the idea of grabbing one of these quotes and putting it into a um, the body of an, or the the signature of an email or something like that, and sending it to people. That's what you suggest that we do. That's great. Yes, people do that all the time, and you can change it, you know, as as you're feeling that day or week and uh, month, whatever. Um, the other thing, you know, I, I I totally believe in the power of words. You know, what we think really does influence our day. And so we just talked about Mark Twain, and the opening quote to this book is a Mark Twain quote. A powerful agent is the right word. 
Absolutely. Because, yeah, I mean, situations, things are the way they are, but it's what we feed into our mind, our attitude that makes the difference. You know, I in, in my workshops, I talk about Victor Frankl in a concentration camp. And he actually found some humor and positive energy and positive words to help him get through that experience. Hard to imagine even, you know, doing that. But he talks about the most powerful thing we have is what we feed ourselves in our mind and our attitude towards what's happening uh, around us. Well, the power of positive thinking is is uh, something that has certainly been written about and discussed, and I believe that it's that it's the way that I have gotten through my many years on Earth. <laughs> so, um, I've I've made lots of lemonade out of lemons through time. Um, because it's just, I don't know, it's just the way I like to do it. You know, I, I can have a terrible thing happen and still be happy the next day, or even later that day. Yeah. You know, I just... Yeah, yeah. There's a quote uh, in The Course of Miracles, uh, which is a kind of New Age uh, book about, really about positive attitude. But I love this quote. It says, you know, in any difficult situation, ask yourself, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And you always have that choice. Do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? Your airline is, is delayed or canceled and you're screaming at the agent who can't do anything because of the bad weather or the engine isn't working. You know, what's the sense? So you, so you can ask, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? You can't be right. I mean, wouldn't you rather be on the ground if the engine's not working and up in the air? Um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, I mean, so it's a question that I always ask myself in a, in a difficult situation. Do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? Yeah, 30,000 feet is the wrong time to be recognizing the fact that the engine's no good. Right, exactly. <laughs> and yet, look at, I fly a lot and I just see people at the airport get so bent out of shape when a plane is delayed. You know, I look at it and I go, okay, um, what what is this opportunity? And I, I remember, you know, I think one lesson we can take is from kids. And I remember one day the plane was going to be three hours late and all the adults were getting really upset. And two little kids next to me took out their little toy cars and there was a pattern on the carpet, and they sat down on the carpet, and they believed that pattern was a highway, and were playing with the cars for a couple of hours on the carpet. You know, adults can't do that, but it was a lesson on how to turn this kind of negative thing around and find some playful or joyous way of um, basically entertaining yourself and not getting so stressed out. Well, that's just an opportunity. If you're sitting in an airport and you've got an hour delay, a two-hour delay, that's just a perfect opportunity for you to make things better and go to the bar and have a couple of extra beers before you fly. Well, that's one way, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love observing people and just, just noting how, how many people look or interact. Or uh, uh, I also um, carry some props around with me. So, like, I have a red clown nose I might put on. Uh, I remember one delayed flight. You know when you get on the plane after it's delayed and the flight attendant is standing there at the door greeting you? 
and we were delayed, and so people were upset. And I and I went up to her and I said, I have an extra clown nose. Would you like to put it on and see how people react? Because they're pretty grumpy. And I stood next to her, and it was amazing how some people saw her and just saw laughing and smiling, and you could see their stress just disappear. And other people saw that and wanted to hang on to their anger, and they just looked away and, you know, like they were still angry, and you can't take that away from me, and just kind of grumpily went up the aisle. So it's all it's all up to us. We have a choice. Well, we do have a choice, and 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 Deborah and I have had this discussion with people on the air and friends and whatever. I, with everything that's going on in the world today, and uh, everything that's on the news, uh, you can find yourself getting your your yourself pretty well sewered, if you will, with negativity, and there, and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, it'd be nice if you could cure the ills of the world, but the reality is you as an individual cannot. Uh, you know, they say you, you you can vote. Well, okay, I can vote. <laughs> Fine. But beyond that, there's really not much that I can do, that I can think of right now. Uh, you don't have the bully pulpit. You don't, you don't have the, um, you don't have the wherewithal or the or the power to say something and and influence people tremendously uh so what are your choices well you may as well just relax and do the best you can with what you've got and uh and not let it get you down and just and and make that conscious conscious choice what do you think alan well i think you're totally right i also think people uh should turn off the news (laughs) I mean, we need to know what's going on in the world, but to wake up to that or to go to sleep with that is not very healthy. Uh, It's just going to bring you down. So get your news in some other way, the Internet, or read your paper later in the day or however, but don't keep harping on that. Um, The other thing is to have uplifting things around, and that's why I write these books of quotes, like The Art of Living Joyfully, because a quote like that around can really help lift you up. I mean, I just opened to page 119, and there's a James Howell quote that says, after rain comes fair weather. So, And that reminds me that often we're in what we consider not so great moment or stress or even somebody dying, you know, close to us. Um, and what we don't realize is that is just this moment. We can't see what's down the road for us. So just remember, you know, things change. This too shall pass. But, you know, something to remind you that um, this will not go on forever. Whatever it is, it, it will not last forever. And so rise above that with your attitude, with positive words, and just move on. There's a, there's a couple of things that uh, uh, that that I try to think of when things get hectic or whatever, and uh, you just think it's all going to hell in a handbasket, and just sort of say to yourself, "Well, the sun will come up in the morning." You know, it, right? It, it will come up. It's it's inevitable that the sun will come up in the morning. And right. the other one is 
the other one is that I've heard people say, and as a matter of fact, my, my late mother would say it and from time to time uh, in her younger days. Uh, she would say, when I would think, oh, Mom, everything's going bad, this, that, blah, 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 she says, it's always darkest before the dawn. Oh, wonderful. So yeah. I don't know where she got that. I, you know, uh, I have no idea where what you can attribute that to, but it's it's, it's right. interesting. Yeah, it's always darkest and, before the dawn. Yeah, and you said the the uh, the sun, you know, will come out tomorrow. I um, grew up on Broadway shows, and so when as soon as you said that, I thought of that song from Annie. Uh, right, sun will come. Out tomorrow, bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow the sun will shine. So I, one thing that lifts me up is singing talk, you know, and I'll make up my own lyrics, I'll sing songs for Broadway shows, but singing uplifting songs. Other people, right. I, I consider myself a very spiritual person, so um, I believe there's a higher power why I'm going through something. Um and uh, I don't think we touched on this this time, but I got into the humor field because my wife uh, died at a rare, from a rare liver disease at the age of 34, and oh, she wow. had a great sen- she had a great sense of humor, and continued to use it during the three years that she knew we had a terminal illness, and it was that humor that helped me rise above that situation. Yes, there were lots of tears but there was also lots of laughter um, to, to help me uh, get through that period. So, I mean, I can give you one example. She was in the hospital with a copy of Playgirl magazine with a male nude centerfold. And she said, Alan, I, I really like this nude man this month. Can you put this picture by the wall over there by the bed? And I said, Alan, this is a hospital. We don't escape for that. And she said, well, maybe you're right. She said, why don't you get a leaf from the plant on the counter and cover up that part? <laughs> and I did that, and things, feet and dead, things were fine for the first day, fine for the second day, but by the third day, the leaves start shrimping up and reveal what we were trying to conceal. And I, we would just start to laugh. And we would come home, she came home from the hospital, and we would think of that incident, and we would start to laugh. And we realized how laughter, even just for a moment, helped us rise above the situation and how it gave us a perspective and gave us a reprieve in what we were going through and how powerful a little laugh was. And that's when I start doing research on the, the therapeutic value of humor and laughter. Wow. Um, the next book that I have in my hand is Change Your Life, a little book of big ideas. Now, what you've been talking about is certainly big ideas, you know, um, finding a way to um, ease the, the pain of what you were going through with your wife is, is a big idea. That's a big idea right there. Right. So um, tell us about that book because that one that one's different from the other two, I think. Right. Actually, this was my first, uh, second, second book. Um, and we were just talking about, you know, what do you do when the world is so, in some people's eyes, so awful, so many terrible things are, are happening. 
So actually, this book is perfect for that. I'm just looking at some of the topics. Uh, we talked about this, alter your attitude. The second topic is be grateful. You know, be, I see so many people complaining about so many things. And I think it's grateful every day for what you have or what you, instead of what you don't have, your life will be so much better. And I realize that we need to be grateful for even things um, that we think are not so great, the not-so-good stuff in our life, because we never know where that's going to take us, and often those are our biggest lessons. Like my wife dying, I didn't want that to happen. Um, it certainly was a, a major loss in my life. But now I'm the author of 25 books, and I... And I uh, you know, they're in nine different languages, and I speak to people all over the world and changing people's lives, and that would not have happened probably if she was still alive because that was uh, something that, that totally changed my life and moved me in a different direction. Let's so talk, some of the other talk. things... Yeah. yeah, go ahead. No. No, no, finish what your thought was. i got another one coming up. No, no, I'm just looking at some of the categories in this book, and they all really could help change people at people's attitudes, uh, like learning to forgive or keep it light or have hope or help others or never give up or, you know. So it, it's things that could totally change their life, and it's why the book is called Change Your Life. You you mentioned that you speak all over the world. Um uh, how do, how was it that you uh, got got into the speaking aspect of this as well? Is it just solely from the development and the uh, writing of your books? Uh, tell us about how it is you became an authority uh, and you're asked, and I'm sure invited, and probably rewarded financially to go and speak. Uh, how did that come to pass? Well, the, that's a fabulous question, Pete, because looking back on my life, uh, I, I would think I'm a professional speaker, and that seems so far. And when I look back at my life, I almost failed speech in college. <laughs> yeah. I, I hated raising my hand. I hated speaking in public. I would always get a C- minus or a D because the teacher would always say, Alan never participates. Um, but after my wife died, I had this passion to tell people about therapeutic humor and how humor could help them get through anything. Because of her um, sense of humor, that helped me. And so I would be, you know, very nervous. They, they say public speaking is the number one fear people have. But I would get up and I would do it anyhow because um, I just had this passion to share my message with the world. And so I would do that, and then I belonged to the National Speakers Association, and people said, if you really want to get your message out, you need to have a book. And so that's when I started to write my book. And, of course, one feeds the other. Somebody reads the book and asks them to come and speak. Somebody um, at a speech, people want to read the book, and so it's just a great combination. But it all started because I had this passion to share my message 
uh, tell people to lighten up, that uh, basically they'll never get out of this world alive. So enjoy yourself, lighten up, and uh, have a good time. When when you uh, take these speaking engagements on, uh, how far have you traveled uh, uh, to to give these presentations? Um, I've spoken in Israel, uh, Hungary, a um, couple of other countries, Mexico, uh, like that. So I guess Israel would be the furthest. When when you speak oh, well, in Hungary, oh maybe well I don't know Australia. I'm in San Francisco, so Australia or Israel further. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. So I when you're speaking in when you're speaking in a place like Hungary, uh, and uh, the, you're speaking, I'm 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 guessing you're speaking in, in English. Do they have people there to translate, or are the people that are receiving your message able to understand English? That That is such an incredible question because of my experience. I was on a, um, they got me on a TV show at 7 o'clock in the morning, and they're all speaking Hungarian, and there is, I do have a translator with me, and but I can only tell, like, one sentence of a, of a funny story or a joke at a time because the translator can't remember it all. And so by the time I get to the funny part or the punchline, Nobody's laughing. <laughs> you know, I, I had a friend. Yeah. I had a friend that is um, a Turkish national. I, she's still my friend, um, and we used to work together a long time ago. And I always marveled <clears throat> at the way she could understand jokes when English is not her first language. In other words, she's speaking perfect English. And I just I'm I am amazed at how someone can understand another language so quickly and get the humor the humor and the idioms and the weird you know things that we think are funny because of some connection to something that how would she know when she grew up in Turkey until she was 20 years old you know it's just interesting to me that people are that quick you know yeah I well, could not do friend- it. Yeah, your friend is pretty good because in on this TV show in in Hungary, they're all laughing and stuff, and you know there's a delay when the translator tells me what they're laughing about, and here it's live TV and I'm sitting there, nothing is funny until <laughs> I get the translation, so they're rolling on the floor with laughter, and it's like I have no idea. What is going on? Uh, well, that's one way to lighten up. That's one way to lighten up. I know. So it's it's a bit bizarre sometimes in countries where I don't understand the language and I need to translate it. But the other thing I realized, um, there was a, a group of Swedish doctors that came to the U.S. and I gave them a, uh, they wanted a half-day workshop. And I realized that... Um, you know, they understood some of my things that were visual, but anything that had um, like an idiom or, you know, double entendre or something, of course they did not understand. My point so exactly. I realized, pardon me, why? Because no, it only my... makes Yeah, go ahead. No, I, I thought you were saying something. I Go ahead, you finish. 
Well, I realized from then on that, one, I've got to test every little thing that I think is funny if I'm going to speak to a a non-U.S. or non-English-speaking audience. And two, that visuals and humor work much better than words because words um, often are so particular to that country or that culture. Mm-hmm. Well, so I've got a dilemma. I, I don't remember. I'm just, my brain is holding this information. <laughs> because I, Maybe you're I, thinking in a different language. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, Alan, my, my, dilemma, my dilemma is uh, I, have, I will say something that I know is just uproariously funny, and I'll say it, and people will look at me and go, huh? What are you speaking? Are you speaking English? Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, it's sort of like, well, that one hit like a thud. <laughs> yeah, but you and, know, uh, I have this, I have the same exact thing. But all I think of that, well, I'm entertaining myself. I thought that was funny. <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I've lived in five countries, so wow. I marvel. I marvel. <clears throat> excuse me at. Um, at, at the power of language and the power of, you know, all of that stuff. But truly, um, sharing a smile with someone is universal. And that feeling of wanting that that person to be uplifted, I would say, is universal. You know, you know, oh, yeah. you know if that's if that's what you're trying to do with someone, you're trying to um, tell someone with your eyes, with your heart. You know, I'm here. I I get you. I want you to I want you to feel uplifted by my presence or whatever. I think that does not have to have language, but that's kind of why the the, the rubber nose is such a good ploy. <laughs> right, and and you know, I travel for a number of countries, and uh, I don't know the language usually, but I'll learn a couple of words, and so a hello, a thank you, a please, and a big smile works so well all the time. And be- yes. and the other is, like, where's the bathroom? I always learn that one, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're in Mexico, los baños, por favor. <laughs> right, uh, exactly. Alan, we're, yeah, we're getting down to the short rows here. Uh, and before we say goodbye, first of all, I want to thank you again for being on the show. It's been a, a lot of fun this last hour, and it's just flown by. Uh, so, But if uh, if you'd like to, uh, now's the time for you to tell us uh, whatever, if you feel comfortable telling us about your new book that's coming out in May. And then also, um, how can people get hold of you, either for speaking engagements or workshops or uh, whatever it is that you're doing outside of your authorship. Uh, so now's your time to give us a commercial. So have at it. Great. Terrific. So um, I'm on the internet, uh, com. but they do need to spell my name right, both names, A-L-L-E-N-K-L-E-I-N.com, alankline.com. Uh, they can go to Amazon and put in my name and see all of my books. They can go to my website that I just gave and Click on books, and they'll see all the books with a little um, kind of synopsis of them. Uh, ask for them at the local bookstore. If they want to get a hold of me, email me at humor, H-U-M-O-R, at, again, com. And my next book, You Can't Ruin My Day, I am so excited about it because 
we often give our power away to situations or to other people. And this book has 52 ways of taking back your power so uh, that basically nobody can ruin your day. And it started because I was on my way to the gym and I got a speeding ticket. And I got to the gym. I was singing songs from a Broadway show that I was listening to in the car. I told people at the gym I just got a speeding ticket. And they said, aren't you unhappy? You're still singing? You know, you got a speeding ticket. It's going to cost you a couple hundred bucks. And and out of my mouth came, I'm not going to let that cop or this ticket ruin my day. And I thought, wow, that's a great book. And so <laughs> that's when I started uh, to, to write that book. And so it's it's endorsed already by three New York Times bestselling authors. And... Um, I hope people look for it. It'll be out in May. You can't ruin my day. Well, I'm looking forward to it because I need to keep my collection growing of Alan Klein books. <laughs> oh, great. Terrific. I'm sure my yeah. publisher will send you one, too. Oh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, Alan, thanks again. It's been a pleasure uh, reconnecting with you uh, after two, uh, two and a half years, whatever, whatever it's been since we spoke last. And uh, uh, it's it's just a great uh, a great joy to have you doing your jollytologist thing on our show. We certainly do appreciate it. And thank you, Pete, and thank you, Deborah. I had a great time too. Thanks. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Okay. Take care now. Have a great day. You too. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Boomer and the Babe Show with hosts Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. The Boomer and the Babe Show is broadcast live on Tuesdays and Fridays. For a schedule of these shows and other shows produced by the Boomer and the Babe Radio Network, go to boomerandthebabe.com. 